and welcome to the midweek episode. You've got Brandon Valentine today. Um, yeah, so today we're gonna go down another one of my my fun history ones. This is one that kind of goes along with some of the stuff we've been talking about a little bit. It's come up a few times in some of the things that we've talked about, um, and I'm gonna talk about the the Library of Alexandria and where it went. Um, in some ways, I mean. There's some, a lot of theories on what happened to it and everything else. Before we even get there, let's kind of um, kind of go and figure out, talk about what it was to begin with. So from uh, Britannica.com, they kind of de- define it as uh, the Library of Alexandria was the most famous library of classical antiquity. It formed part of the research institute at Alexandria in Egypt that is known as the Alexandrian Museum. Libraries and archives were known to many ancient civilizations in Egypt, Mesopotamia, Syria, Asia Minor, and Greece, but the earliest such institutions were of a local and regional nature, primarily concerned with the conservation of their own particular traditions and heritage. The idea of a universal library like that of Alexandria arose only after the Greek mind had begun to envisage and encompass a larger worldview. The Greeks were impressed by the achievements of their neighbors, and many Greek intellectuals sought to explore explore the resources of their knowledge. There is literary evidence of Greek individuals visiting Egypt, especially to acquire knowledge. So Herodotus, Plato, um, uh, Theophratus, and Exodus of Sinaitis, um, and a few others. So against this background of avid hunger for knowledge among the Greeks, Alexander launched his global enterprise in 334 BCE, which he accomplished with meteoric speed until his untimely death in 323 BC. His aim throughout had not been been restricted to conquering lands as far as from Macedonia, Macedonia as India, but had been to also explore them. He required his companions, generals, and scholars to report to him in detail on regions previously unmapped and uncharted. His campaigns resulted in a considerable addition of empiric knowledge of geography, as Eratosthenes remarked, as reported by Greek geographer Strabo. The reports that Alexander had acquired, had acquired survived after his death, and they motivated an unprecedented movement of scientific research and study of the earth its natural physical qualities, and its inhabitants. The time was pregnant with a new spirit that endangered, or engendered a renaissance of human culture. It was in the atmosphere that the great library in Museon saw the light of day in Alexandria. The founding of the library and the Museon is unquestionably connected with the name of Demetrius of Phalaron, a member of the Peripatetic school and a former Athenian politician. After his fall from power in Athens, Demetrius sought refuge at the court of King Ptolemy, the first Soter, and became the king's advisor. Ptolemy soon took advantage of Demetrius's wide and versatile knowledge and about 295 BC charged him with the task of founding the library and the Moseon. So, uh, Ptolemy is the one who took over after um, Alexander's death. And we won't go deep into that. There's a whole, like civil war type thing pretty much that happened after Alexander's death. Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy started, you know, the, the, there's rumors too, that when he started the, the library of Alexandria, he actually stole the body of Alexander. It was, it was being taken away, um, put it into the, 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 the library. There's a lot of really interesting theories on that as well, as well. And uh, literature on that. So 
And the hard part is there's a lot of stuff here that, you know, we've there's reports of, but, I mean, this was, you know, BCE, um, 300s BCE, and we don't have great information on what really happened. So, um, the letter of Eretius of the 2nd century BCE, BCE reveals that the institution was conceived as a universal library. Demetrius had it as at his disposal a large budget in order to collect, if possible, all the books in the world. To the best of his ability, he carried out the king's objective. The same claim was reiterated more than once. Irenaeus spoke of Ptolemy's desire to equip his library with the writings of all men as far as they were worth serious attention. Undoubtedly, however, the largest amount of material was written in Greek. In fact, judging from the scholarly work produced in Alexandria, it seems likely that the whole corpus of Greek literature was amassed in the library. One of the major acquisitions for the library was the books of Aristotle, concerning which there are two conflicting accounts. According to Athenius, Philadelphus purchased um, that collection for a large sum of money, whereas Strabo reported that Aristotle's books passed on in succession through different hands until they were later confiscated in 86 BCE by Sola, who carried them away to Rome. The two accounts perhaps deal with two different things. Um, Athenius may be referring to the collection of books that Aristotle had amassed at his school in Athens, which Philadelphus was able to purchase when his former tutor Straton was head, off, was head of the Lyceum. Strabo's account may be dealing with the personal writings that Aristotle had bequeathed to his successors as heads of the Lyceum until they were confiscated by Sola. In support of the latter understanding is Plutarch's remark that their parapatetics no longer possess the original text of Aristotle and Theophratus because they had fallen into idle and base hands. And this is one thing that we find through a lot of this, as I'm reading through a lot of this and doing a lot of uh, research on this, is there's a lot of he said... She said, they said, nobody said, but this is what we think um, throughout this entire, you know, as we get farther into this, you know, I'm kind of going with the, the background of where this all comes from, what is the Library of Alexandria, why it was so important, and then in a bit we'll talk about how it was destroyed, was it really destroyed, who destroyed it, and how many times was it destroyed, or were they even talking about the right place? So, and we'll get through that in here in a minute. So, there was a huge hunt for books. Fabulous stories circulated about the lengths to which the Ptolemies would go in their uh, avid hunt for books. One method to which they reportedly resorted was to research every ship that sailed in the harbor of Alexandria. If a book was found, it was taken to the library for a decision as to whether to return it or to confiscate it and replace it with a copy made on the spot with an adequate compensation to the owner. Books acquired in that manner were designated from the ships. So, and that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. What they would do is they would take the book, someone would copy it, and then they would hand back the copy. And they would keep the original at the library. So, and that's kind of what they did with a lot of books. That's one way they applied a, a, acquired a lot of books, supposedly. So... Another story reported by Gallen in the writings on Hippo Hippocrates uh, reveals how Ptolemy III managed to obtain the original text of the great dramatic poets Asiles, Sophocles, and Euripides. I know I'm completely screwing these up. Anybody who is a constant listener and has listened to this for, for a while knows I can't pronounce anything. You're lucky I can pronounce Brandon. 
So the the precious texts were safeguarded in the Athenian state archives and were not allowed to be lent out. The king, however, persuaded the governors of Athens to permit him to borrow them in order to have them copied. The, enor- the enormous sum of 15 talents of silver was deposited in Athens as a pledge for their safe restitution. The king thereupon kept the originals and sent back copies, willingly forfeiting the pledge. So, and that's how he got the, the original co- uh, text of uh, Sicilies, Sophocles, and Euripides. So, was basically by paying the fine to keep them. So those irregular, irregular methods of collection were supplemented by the purchase of books from different places, especially from Athens and Rhodes, which sustained the largest book markets of the time. So occasionally, the library's collectors bought different versions of the same work. For example, example in the Homeric text that came from Chios, from Sinope, and from Massilia. So... Um, of languages other than Greek, Egyptian had the largest section. Ptolemy I is said to have encouraged Egyptian priests to accumulate records of their past tradition and heritage and to render them available for use by Greek scholars and men of letters whom he invited to live in Egypt. Best known examples from each group were the Egyptian priest Manetho, who had good command of Greek, and the Greek author Hecateus of Abdera. So, um, like I said, sorry if I'm mispronouncing all of these. We all know that's just typical for the, that. That's par for the course when you're looking with me, working with me. So, um, and this is one of those things. The one thing you notice too, if you, if you really pay attention here, I'm talking about Ptolemy the first, Ptolemy the second, Ptolemy the third. This wasn't just one person. This was throughout like the legacy of this, the, this family, um, as they were in control of Egypt and, uh, at the time. And that was the Ptolemies. Um, which reigned for a couple hundred years, um, all the way up to Cleopatra the Seventh, who is we will get to it a bit, and Cleopatra the Seventh. So when you hear about Cleopatra and the Cleopatra that we know of, the Mark Anthony, everything else, that Cleopatra is actually Cleopatra the Seventh, um, and that's the one that we all know of and that we all think of when you say Cleopatra. So, besides the bulk of Greek literature and a full corpus of Egyptian records, there's evidence that the library incorporated the written works of other nations. Early in the 3rd century BCE, a Chaldean priest named Barosus wrote in Greek a history of Babylonia. His book quickly became known in Egypt and was probably used by Menetheo, according to Pliny the Elder. Hermippius in Alexandria wrote a voluminous book on Zoro. Wow, that's an interesting word. Zoroastrianism. Buddhist writings would also become available as a consequence of the exchange of embassies between Ashoka and Philadelphia. The translation of the Pentateuch from Hebrew into Greek was a practical necessity for the large Jewish community in Alexandria. Already Hellenized by the end of the 3rd century BCE, the translation of the Septuagint, Septuagint was executed piecemeal during the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE, rendered possible in Alexandria because of the abundance of research material available at the library. The Septuagint was survived as the most valuable work in the history of translation and continues to be indispensable to all biblical studies. So there's a lot of really neat stuff that was going here. This would kind of be like the... I was trying to remember what they called it in Game of Thrones. There was basically the same kind of idea. Um, And that's one thing once they start getting into the bigger parts that we're really not mentioning here. We're talking a lot about the, the buildings and everything else. But as it grew... 
um, it was huge. There was plenty of places for people to study. It was basically almost like, I mean, the best way to describe this would be like a huge college, like library with hundreds of thousands of books and people being able to walk around and basically paid to be there and to study. Um, and to bring the greatest minds, trying to bring the greatest minds there to come up with, you know, figure out what's happening in the world. A lot of people have felt like the destruction of this library sent, sent back the human population thousands of years. Um, there's people that have theorized that if the, the, if the library hadn't been destroyed, that we may have walked on the moon in Newton's time. Um, do I think it's that that much? No, I don't think so. Um, but we will get into that here in a bit. The Association Library with the Museum, whose scholars required a reliable resource, helped the library develop into a proper research center. In its location close to the harbor and within the Royal Palace's grounds, placed it under the direct supervision of the kings. Those circumstances aided the rapid growth of the library's collection. Within half a century of its foundation, circa 295 BCE, the collections of the Royal Library had exceeded the space allotted to contain the accumulated books. It was found necessary to establish an offshoot that could house, house the surplus volumes. To that end, Ptolemy III, um, which by the way, Ptolemy is spelled P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. Um, so Ptolemy III incorporated the branch library into the newly built Serapium, which the Serapium will become important a little bit later. But remember that Serapium, which was situated at a distance from the Royal Court in the Egyptian district south of the city. Estimates of the total number of books in the library vary. The earliest surviving figure from the 3rd century BCE is reported as more than 200,000 books, whereas the medieval text of John Cece's mentions 42,000 books in the outer library. And the inner royal library, 400,000 mixed books plus 90,000 unmixed books. A still higher estimate of 700,000 was reported between the 2nd and 4th centuries. Now remember that, that what he says, the 42,000 books in the outer library. That outer library that he's talking about, many people believe is the Serapium. Um, is the outer library with the 42,000 books. <clears throat> So, registration and classification of books. Galen preserved the information that was recorded for each book, included the work's title, author, and editor, as well as its place of origin, length, and lines, and whether the manuscript was mixed, containing more than one work, or unmixed, a single text. It is worth noting that a scribe's pay was rated according to the quality of writing and number of lines, an attempt to standardize costs and wages throughout the empire. Diocletian ranked the scribe's pay as follows. To a scribe for the best writing, uh, 100 lines, 25 denarii, for second quality writing, 100 lines, 20 denarii. To a notary for writing a petition or a legal document, 100 lines, 10 denarii. So, and this is one of those things, I mean, if you really start reading into this and starting to, to, to focus on it and listen to a lot of it, um, it really seems like it's kind of like the libraries are set today in the way they're set up with librarians and people keeping everything, documenting it. Um, I mean, it's not the the, you know the Dewey Decimal System, but I mean, it, it sounds pretty close to it, kind of the way they're, you know, documenting these together, which you wouldn't have fun to, you know, have a, a Gen Z or a millennial try and figure out the Dewey Decimal System. That's always fun. I'm not sure I can remember how to do it. So, further, by a bibliographical survey of the contents of the library in every field of learning. A tremendous undertaking was entrusted to Greek poet and scholar Callimachus, who was known for his encyclopedic 
erudition. The result was the Penox tables, which has survived in only a few fragments. Those remains attest to the following division, rhetoric, law, epic, tragedy, comedy, lyric, poetry, history, medicine, mathematics, natural science, and miscellaneous. Callimachus's work instantly became a model for future works of a similar nature. Its influence can be traced to the Middle Ages, to its brilliant 10th century Arabic counterpart, bookseller Ibn al-Nidam's Katib al-Furist index, which has survived intact. It was mainly because of Library Alexandria that the scholars of the Museon were able to maintain scholarship at the highest level in almost all areas of learning. In appreciation of their achievements, Vitruvius in the first century CE expressed the gratitude felt by subsequent generations for the work of the, of the predecessors in preserving the memory of mankind, hence we must re- render to them indeed the greatest thanks, because they did not let all go in jealous silence, but provided for the record and writing of their ideas in every kind. And this is one of those things that's amazing with this, um, is reading about this and going through it. What was different about the Library of Alexandria than many other libraries in, the, in its time, like we mentioned in the very beginning, was uh, most libraries of that time, the way they were set up was, this is our library, this is our regional library, and we only care about our regional things. It wasn't until Alexandria, you know, Library of Alexandria, really, where all of a sudden they're like, we want a universal library. We want a library with everything. We want a library where I can go learn all the things. Not just the things about Egypt, not just the things about Greece, not just the things about Athens, not just the things about, you know, whatever my regional area is. I want to go learn all the things. And that's kind of what the Library of Alexandria was supposed to be. It was that place um, where you could learn everything and you could find information on everything. Um, And that all started with Ptolemy, who... You know, Alexander was really into it. Um, he really made the, 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 the city of Alexandria. Um, but the idea of the library of Alexandria in many ways was Ptolemy. He was the one who really started it. Um, and I mean, I didn't go deep into Alexander or Ptolemy. I mean, they're both famous, famous, you know, figures in history. Um, Ptolemy, I mean, his family line ran for 200 years, like I said, pretty much ending with Cleopatra um, in 48 BCE. Um, a little bit there. I mean, it was a little bit after that, but that's kind of when things start to get interesting. So, which speaking of 48 BCE, we're going to start talking about the the fate of the library. What happened to it? We all have all heard, you know, when I started this, I even basically said that destruction, you know, all that kind of stuff. Why was it destroyed? Was it destroyed? How was it destroyed? Who's responsible? And that's what we're going to go through now is try and figure out. We've talked a little bit about what it is, what it was. And if it was as amazing as it was, I could see where there was a lot of stuff there. And it would be amazing if we could still find it. And why a lot of people wonder too now where they go back, why haven't they found it? Because I'll be honest, I'll tell you right now before we even get there. Spoiler alert. um, They don't know where it is. They've never found the remnants of it in any of that. And the hard part about this is, is what people don't think about is they really can't. It's tough because um, if you go to Greece, you go to all that, you can still see the Colosseum. All that still exists. You go to where Alexandria was and is, it's a city now. 
It'd be like walking into, you know, Seattle and digging it up to try and find the remnants of what was there before. Um, I kind of wish they would and just wreck the city and start over. But, I mean, that's a whole nother argument. And that's one of the things that we run into is that's kind of what would happen here, would have to happen here with Alexandria. So it's not. I mean, it's going to be tough to ever be able to really find all this stuff as long as Alexandria still exists. Because if there was, if the library was destroyed or it's still there or its wreckage is still there, it's underneath the city. It's buried. It's gone. Um, You would have to dig it up and it's not going to happen. Not anytime soon. Not as long as there's a city there. So, um, the fate of the great wealth of books remains provocative and controversial. For centuries, the main point of contention was whether or not the library or libraries, um, as we mentioned, there's a Serapium, so technically there was two, survived until the Arab conquest of Alexandria in the 7th century. In the 21st century, however, the topic has cooled down, and there is growing agreement among the serious scholars that both libraries had both perished long before the Arab conquest. Scholars fully believe there's enough evidence to show that the destruction of two libraries occurred at different, at different times. And this is one of those things that we'll go through. And like I mentioned earlier, so the Serapium and the main library, there's two different thoughts on when they were destroyed, that they were destroyed at different times, um, and two, uh, a lot of different things that people believe of what happened. One of the first thoughts is that the, it happened when the city was sacked under Caesar. So Caesar himself did report the, the burning of Alexandria as an actual consequence of his war against his great rival Pompey. In 48 to 47 BCE, ships bringing enemy troops had been docked in the harbor close to a series of warehouses, and Caesar's troops torched them. So, and this is one of those things that a lot of people don't think about, um, and a lot of people don't know about. There was uh, a, a war between Julius Caesar and... Pompey. Pompey was running from Caesar, basically, and Caesar chased him into to Alexandria. When he got to Alexandria, um, Ptolemy the 13th had, in, in trying to gain favor with Caesar, had killed Pompey and beheaded him and presented his head to Caesar, who basically was actually disgusted by it and like, what the hell did you do? Basically taking away Caesar's joy of like basically crushing him in you know, the political realm and whatever. And yeah, it, it, there's a lot of things when you start looking at some of these things, that the Greek did and everything else. It's like, I understand why people love reality TV now. Cause it was the same shit back then without the TV. Um, but yeah, he was upset about that a little bit. And there was at the time a war, a civil war going on between, uh, Ptolemy the 13th and his sister, Cleopatra the seventh. So, and of course, when Caesar came in, he was already mad at Ptolemy the 13th because he killed Pompey. And also at the same time, um, he sided with Cleopatra because, well, I mean, they pretty much met and almost immediately started, uh, you know, bumping uglies, if you know what I mean. Um, There's many rumors, too. Um, I saw some. I have, I mean, of course, you know, it's mainly all rumors that Cleopatra and Caesar actually had a child, but... Um, child was died. That's a whole nother tragic story of Cleopatra and all that. But, uh, since they, they noticed that Caesar was siding with, uh, Cleopatra, um, Ptolemy's advisors got the, the troops and the, the, the public against Caesar 
kind of, you know, got him stuck in the palace. Once he decided to try and escape, the best way he figured was, you know, the ships are bringing enemy troops, you know, like they had been docked in the harbor, close to a series of warehouses, and Caesar's troops torched them. They, they started them on fire to give them a chance to escape. In the fire... In the conflagration that followed, a number of nearby buildings were destroyed, following the city's instructions that all incoming ships should be searched for books, which were required to be copied for the library. It is feasible that these seized books have been temporarily stored in the dockside warehouses. In this account, material damage was done to the collections of the library, but it was not its end. This ties in with the account of the geographer Strabo, who did much of his own research some decades after the events of 48 to 47 BCE, using sources from the library. So a lot of people don't they 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 attribute, and this is one of the biggest ones. They attribute Caesar to the the destruction of the library, um, very much so. I mean, he is considered to be that is the defining story, even in the you know the the wonderful movie um, with Catherine Hepburn as uh, Cleopatra. Um, in that movie, he is even depicted as burning down the Library of Alexandria. But like it mentions here, in many cases, people don't believe that he actually burned it down. That what happened was he burned down the the, the storehouses that were storing the books. Um, it's either that or a lot of people believe what happened was it wasn't the main library that burned down. It was the outer library, the Serapium, because in one of the accounts that I read where they were talking about and someone wrote down what had happened, they said some 40,000 books were, re- were destroyed. If we go back, what did we say? How many books were in the Serapium? That's right. 42,000. So a lot of people believe it was either the Serapium that was destroyed in the fire with, you know, that Caesar started or... They were just books that were being ready to either be shipped out or had been, you know, confiscated from the ships and were currently being, you know, transcribed or copied. So the other things they talk about, the Serapium seems to have suffered a fire at some point around CE 181 and again in 217, but was rebuilt. Although there's no indication whether the fire affected the library or just the temple complex. In CE 273, the Emperor Aurelian recaptured Alexandria. After it had been occupied by the insurgent rebellion of Palmyra, destroying the palace complex and almost certainly inflicting damage on the library. But if this is a true record, then it is possible the library of the Serapium may have outlived the Museon. So there, there's some people that actually think that the Serapium lived longer than the actual inner library of the Museon. So um, the writer Edward Gibbon, in his classic The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, dismissed another theory, that the destruction could be blamed on one of the Muslim conquerors of Egypt, Caliph Omar. This version of events had been reported by some early Christian writers, including an evocation, evocative sorry, story of the scrolls being fuel for thousands of hot baths in the city. The Enlightenment skeptic was scathing in his analysis of that account. It was scarcely logical that the Caliph would burn Jewish and Christian religious books, which were also considered holy texts in Islam. And that's it. A lot of people think, oh, because he was a, a you know a Muslim and, and everything else, that he burned them just because they weren't Muslim and they everything else. But there is a big, you know, in the Muslim religion, religion 
that they considered those holy texts in Islam. So it, it's very unlikely that they would burn them. And there was a lot of times, too, where people like think that they were trying to get rid of Christians, trying to get everything like that, which in a lot of ways they weren't. In many ways, the Muslims actually had a tax that they made people pay for not turning it Muslim. So, and they made a lot of money off that tax. So it was actually beneficial for them not to force people to change to Muslim and to remain Christians. So for them to destroy this would be completely out of character for him to just to randomly destroy the, the library um, for no reason. And to, to send the scrolls to, you know, fuel the bathhouses. I mean, oh, I couldn't even imagine. Could you imagine the works of Aristotle warming up your bathtub? Ouch, that just scares me. That just hurts. It just hurts my soul. Um, for Gibbon, the Library of Alexandria is one of the great achievements of the classical world, world and its destruction, which he concludes was due to a long and gradual process of neglect and growing ignorance. This is, you know, kind of one of the, the last ones. There's a few we'll, we'll kind of mention more as we go, but this is the one that in my opinion, in my research, everything else that I've looked, this is the one that I think is the most likely. Um, I don't think it was one big thing. I don't think it was one fire. I think it was years of neglect, um, growing ignorance. I think they had a great, you know, they, they wanted this. Wars over time, which we'll, we will talk about, you know, in this week's episode with Big D on how, you know, wars can cost a lot of money and cost, you know, a lot of money and cause major strife. Um, and I think that was part of it. All the wars that they had, Alexandria was uh, constantly under siege because um, it was a port city, everything else. Um, and I just, I, I think over time, they just didn't have money. They stopped putting money into it. They stopped paying for a lot of the stuff, stopped paying the scholars to be there. Some of the scholars, because it was a very violent city and constantly being sacked and constantly being attacked, um, that they couldn't keep the scholars there. Um, so I think over time, it just... It kind of faded away. So, um, and like I said, Gibbon kind of agrees with this, you know. process of neglect, growing ignorance, was a symbol of the barbarity that overwhelmed the Roman Empire, allowing civilization to leech away the ancient knowledge that was being re-encountered re and appreciated in his own day. The fires were major incidents in which many books were lost, but the institution of the library disappeared more gradually, both through organizational neglect and through the gradual obsolence of papyrus scrolls themselves. And that's one thing, too. A lot of these were originally written on papyrus, papyrus scrolls, um, which is very thick, you know, kind of a thick type paper. So in that thought, Alexandria um, is a cautionary tale of danger of creeping decline. Through their underfunding, low prioritization, and general disregard for the institutions that preserve and share knowledge, libraries, and archives. Today, we must remember that war is not the only way an Alexandria can be destroyed. And that's one of the biggest things. I, mean, I think, you know, going through a lot of this is looking at what... What was lost here? I mean, was it really just lost a bunch of books? Or was it, you know, did we lose more? And I think we lost more. Um, because once we lost that book, those, those books and those intellectuals, we lost, you know, a, a type of being and a type, I mean, intelligence 
that was above and beyond and became barbarism and everything else. And I think if we really look at what happened to the Library of Alexandria, um, it's it's what's happening to us now. Our society, we have at our fingertips more knowledge than we've ever had at our fingertips in any human being any civilization has ever had at their fingertips right now and from what i see in this world i mean i am i'm 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 an instructor i teach adults safety and what i see when i teach is i see the largest amount of ignorance i've ever seen in my life to have as much knowledge that we can just reach out and touch but yet be so ignorant is beyond me. And that's what I think happened here with the, the Library of Alexandria. They had all that knowledge at their fingertips and everybody ignored it. Nobody paid attention to it. Nobody used that knowledge to better themselves or to better their children or to better their society. And the library fell. It, it disappeared. It's gone. And like I said, do I think it was one major thing? No, I think it's a, a bunch of other things that caused this. So, I mean, and there's more. I mean, I can go down through this. Um, like I said, there is the, the Caesar, like we mentioned. Um, there was other ones here where we talk about several testimonies written by contemporary, near contemporary eyewitnesses testified the fact uh, to the fact that the devastation was extensive um, when it was destroyed to its foundations during Theophilus, which I didn't even mention that one, which was a Christian Christian war where the Christians went after it and destroyed it um, when Christianity became one the one only uh, religion acknowledged throughout the empire. Emperor Theodosius I in his zeal to wipe out all vestiges of paganism issued a decree in 391 sanctioning the demolition of temples in Alexandria. Empowered by the imperial decree, Theophilus, bishop of Alexandria, led an attack on the Serapium, and he himself gave the first blow to the cult statue of Serapis. His frenzied followers run amok, ran amok in the temple, destroying and plundering. When the destruction was complete, Theophilus ordered a church to be built on the site. Um, yes. So, and, and, you know, another witness... Enephus mentions in Vita Iadisi that Theophilus and his followers brought destruction on the temple and made war on its contents. Only foundations they could not take away because of the magnitude of its stone blocks, which they were unable to remove, but they spoiled and destroyed practically everything. A third contemporary witness of F. Antonius, who appears to have visited the Serapeum before, before 391 and wrote a description of it sometime after the destruction under the title, a description of the Acropolis of Alexandria. One statement reads as follows. On the inner side of the colonnade were built rooms, some which served as bookstores and were open to those who devoted their life to the cause of learning. It was these study rooms that exalted the city to be the first in philosophy. Some of the rooms were set up for the worship of the old gods. So there's no doubt that Aphethonius was describing conditions as they existed before this destruction, since it is unthinkable to speak of worshipping the old gods after 391 when a church was set up on the site. So, and which shows evidence that the Serapeum 
was there in 391 and put an end to the temple and the daughter library housed in it. So, tension in the city continued during the first two decades of the 5th century and then cooled off. Alexandria resumed its normal life under new conditions with Christianity prevailing. The cathedral church alone dominated the intellectual scene and no more is heard of the museum and its libraries. So, in 642, the Arab general Amir ibn al-As conquered Egypt and occupied Alexandria. The events of the early Arab conquest were recorded by historians from several sides, including Arabs, Copts, and Byzantines. For more than five centuries after the conquest, there was no mention of and not a single reference to any accident related to an Alexandrian library under the Arab- Arabs. Suddenly, early in the 13th century, appears an account reported by Ibn al-Kifti and other Arab authors describing how Amar had burned the books of the ancient library of Alexandria. The story has a fictitious flavor and has repeatedly been criticized, notably by 18th century British historian Edward Gibbon. And it has since been proved to be a 12th century fabrication. So, there's a few things there, you know. A couple questions arise from that circumstance. What happened in the 12th century that suddenly aroused interest in the fate of the library? and further led to an accusation that Amir was the culprit. Why, after total silence more than eight centuries after the destruction of the Serapium, should Ibn al-Kifti be so anxious to record such a story in full detail? So, and that's kind of one of those things at that time, once again, we start looking at there was a fighting going on. The 11th and 12th centuries were decisive in the history of the Crusades, which is going to be a big topic here soon. Um, Not on this episode, but coming up. And a crucial period in world history. During those centuries, two developments, not conspicuously interrelated, were taking place. In Europe and the Arab world, the first was military, and it was decided in favor of the Arabs on the battlefield in Palestine. The second was culture and of more far-reaching consequences, and it was decided in favor of the West. In both Byzantine and Europe, there was a remarkable revival of classical learning, especially Greek philosophy. In the mid-11th century, a university was established in Constantinople with faculties in law, philosophy, and philology. In Western Europe, the flourishing scholastic movement led to widespread funding of new universities in France, Italy, England, and Germany, including those at Chartres, Paris, Bologna, and Oxford. So, and that's one thing, like I said, we, we see a lot of, it's interesting to see and to read in, in this research a lot of this, because you start seeing like the way that it was the, the Library of Alexandria, if it was set up the way they talk about, it was set up like the universities that we see start to pop up in the 11th and 12th centuries, you know, in places like Paris, Bologna, and Oxford. And, Oxford. Um, and then because of war and because of infighting and everything else, um, we lost that. And every time... I see all this stuff and everything seems to be going good with the library or anything in that. It's a division of the people where you have the Muslims against the Christians. You have, you know, this group against this group and they end up destroying the other groups, literature and everything else. When in all reality, you're, you're destroying everything of that, that group in a way that's destroying what we need here in the world. You know, we need knowledge. We need the knowledge. Stop destroying knowledge. Stop destroying books. I mean, it's one of those things that we all talk about, you know, and book burning is like the worst thing, but they've been doing it for thousands of years. You know, whether it be, you know, 
Caesar doing it on accident or supposedly, you know, the, the, the colleague sending him off and being starting fires to keep you warm in your bathtub. Um, all sorts of things here. This is a very interesting subject. I kind of hit on everything um, because it's one of those ones. It's very, it's hard to, it's hard for me to focus anyway. You all know that. But to focus on one thing because there's so many different things I want to go through on this one. But I think on this one, this is one that I think you really need to go down and look into and just see. I don't think, you know, where a lot of people, and, you know, this will be kind of my final thoughts on this one. Um, I don't think where I've read a lot of people say that because of the loss of the Library of Alexandria, we lost thousands and thousands of years of uh, knowledge and everything else. I don't think we did. I think a lot of those were lost in other ways. They were lost over time. They were lost at different times. I don't think it was one major event that took it out. I think it, like I said, it it faded over time. Um, And I think there was other libraries at the time that weren't as big as Alexandria, but were still decent size that had other things. The, the Library of Alexandria wasn't the only, it was just probably the biggest. And like I said, I don't think we lost it all. And in many cases, there was copies of these books made. Usually, the, there wasn't just the one copy that was inside the library. Um, so I think a lot of this stuff is still out there somewhere, or some of it may be lost. I mean, one of the things that they found, they found not too long ago a mummy that had some scrolls wrapped up inside of it that they found that were perfectly preserved. Um, they found other things like that. I think they're out there. I think it's just a matter of finding them. Uh, it's one of those things that would not be with the way things worked. Maybe it's just under the city. Maybe it's all still right there, and it's just hidden under the city. They didn't destroy it. They just buried it. Who knows? We don't know. We don't know because there's multiple stories on what really happened to it. But like I said, I think honestly what it was, it probably just faded away. And at time, as they lost funding, they lost people. And, you know, like you see with anything where a a company or anything like that starts to go down, the people take what they want from it. And by the end, they probably, you know, sold some of it off, did other things, and it just faded away. And the stories of it burning down are just fantastical stories. And I found that with a lot of history where we read something in history or we hear something and we've heard it our entire lives. And then we go down and look at the research and we're like, well, this isn't as neat as I thought it was. Um, Because we want that beautiful, insane, just adventure, that story. And a lot of times the truth is boring. So like I said, I think it just faded away. Uh, it's still fascinating. I still wish we had a lot of the stuff that was there um, just to understand how they did. There's many people that think um, the uh, basically the, the directions or how-to manuals were there of how to build the pyramids. So a lot of people think we lost that. Um, there's a lot of things that people think were lost in there, but there's no proof that they were there. It's a lot of maybes. It could have been possible. Um, so who knows? It's a very fascinating one to go to, though, and I kept reading about it, so I figured, what the hell? Let's talk about it. So thank you for listening. I hope you hope you enjoyed it. Um, thank you to Fringe Radio Network for always, you know, airing us. Um, everybody else, uh, NWCZ Radio, uh, Channel One, um, the Mistress Radio, or 
I probably said that wrong. Um, all the other ones. Thank you. Thank you for airing us. Thank you for listening to us. Uh, if you have any questions, um, anything you want to talk to us about, whatever, email us down the RH at protonmail.com or you can send me a message on Instagram, Mr. underscore B underscore 666. And that's spelled, spelled out, Mr. M I S T E R underscore B underscore 666. Thank you all. And I will talk to you later.